This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 28th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast and YouTube show. During the month of April, we will be exploring the PDCA model for learning teams facilitators. All the co-authors of the Practice of Learning Teams book, myself, Glennis McCarthy and Brent Robinson, will participate in this four-part series. In episode 28, We'll explore our logic behind the framework and the planning part of the PDCA cycle of improvement. In episode 29, we will explore the doing part of the cycle. In episode 30, we'll then explore the check and act part of the framework. Concluding with episode 31, when we will reflect on the series and feedback from our listeners. The show notes. We'll have a link for you to register and download a PDF version of the framework in UK and US formats. We are granting access to this document to the Learning Teams community under the Creative Commons copyright, which means that you are free to copy, communicate and adapt the work for non-commercial purposes, as long as you attribute the work to Learning Teams Inc. and abide by the copyright and intellectual property terms. We hope that you enjoy the series and we continue our journey of learning and improving with learning teams. We'd like to start off with session one today and talk a little bit about why the idea and how it will support facilitators. So the PDCA facilitation framework for learning teams has been developed to assist the facilitator gaining knowledge and experience in conducting learning teams by framing some of the key concepts and thinking to be applied. This framework is not a series of sequential steps to follow or to undertake a learning team. The role of the facilitator is to lead people through the learning team towards agreed upon objectives in a manner that encourages participation, ownership, and by reflection by all those involved. Your own reflection about using this framework and the learning gained from that reflection should be included as part of your own journey of learning and improving. So guys, why the idea? Look, I think um, PDCA is um, a model that we're quite familiar with. Um, many practitioners and many people that are interested in using learning teams will be familiar with the idea of PDCA. Um, and I think what it does is it gives us some really nice um, incremental steps that we can use that will really inform good practice. It just gives you that really nice framework that you can start off with, you know, that you can start with the planning, think about how you're going to go about it, what, what, are, you, what are you trying to get out of it, what's it going to look like, and then work yourself through that. It's like doing anything else, whether it's a, a lean program or a quality program or a safety program, it just gives you that simple four-step process to start with and then reflect on how it went at the end of it. And it's interesting from my perspective, um, for a lot of people, uh, one of the issues they have with learning teams is it's organic by its nature. 
and they've gone from having these um, these constructs of following a, a process or a procedure to now basically going effectively what we might call free range, that makes sense. So when we thought about creating the PDSA model, it was really about trying to give them that, that framing so that they had some comfort because they knew what PDCA meant, but then we could give them that unique perspective about how PDCA was going to be applied within a learning team. I think uh, that's a really good point, Brent. And what we're seeing out there is we've got some people out there that are promoting learning teams as this really structured program. You know, some might even call it it's nearly weaponized. And I don't think you get this the outcome you're looking for. This framework, this four-part framework that you've, we've developed just lets you work within it. It's not constraining. And quite often, you know, as we start these programs or these learning teams, they actually take, as long as you've defined what you're trying to get to or what the issue is, I think it lets you learn a lot more. It doesn't constrain the thinking. That's what I love, I love about them. And so this is a really nice way to think about it when you're going to be facilitating one of these is each of those steps and how it's going to look within a, a you know, within a very wide context. So Glynis, from an adult ed point of view, we, we, we're trying to, I think use the word scaffold. We're trying to provide some scaffold for that person so that they can see where they sit within it and yeah. then allow themselves to build outside it. Well, you think about, if you think about what does the word scaffold evoke, you know, it kind of evokes a sort of a structure and not a really, um, a, a structure that's going to support something else, isn't it? A structure that's got some, some height and some um, width to it. Um, but it's not overly rigid. It's not going to be your final product. Um, and so I think what the what the PDCA model does is it gives us a little bit of comfort because it provides some structure. And then we're able to develop a skill set within those structures or the, de the definition of those sort of scaffolds. Um, I think the PDCA model has got really good merit because it doesn't dictate practice, but what it does is it just guides our practice. So it can we can set it into categories so we can look at the, the plan part, the do part, uh, the check part, the act part, and we can look to see how that kind of double backs on itself um, so that we get that kind of continuous learning opportunity, not only for us as practitioners who facilitate learning teams, but also for those people who participate in them. And when we created this, we, we didn't rewrite the book. We basically took elements that we reference in the book and then we set them within the framework and we basically summarize them. So for me, this PDCA model really uh, complements the book at the same time. So, so the book gives a much deeper context and understanding as to what sits behind it. The PDCA model, which is basically a, a you know, four page document, just really gives that, that graphical representation with some, some key things just to keep them on that sort of path as they go along. And ultimately, and ultimately, um, as they evolve and learn, um, even when they sort of start start to doubt possibly what they're doing, they're able to go back and check in with that framework again. Yeah, I think it, it really helps you when you're reflecting on the completion of one of these learning teams. It gives you that framework to say, okay, well, this was this is how I planned it and this is how it ended up. 
and gives you that basis to go back and check yourself and say, okay, what would I do? Could I make it better? What would I do differently next time? Um, and where can I improve? And that's what I love about it. And I think you're right, Brent. What it does is it gives you a summary of the text in the book. Um, so really what you're trying to do, I think what you've done is you've taken out those kind of key points that we need to be mindful of when we're setting up and running a learning team. Um, and also it reminds us also that just because the learning team is finished, actually there's another step that we as the facilitator need to take in order to ensure that our practice is continually improving, um, both in terms of um, encouraging worker learning, encouraging a, a development of our own skill set as a facilitator, but also to, to, to take out the essence of that and provide that for organisational learning. So again, I think it just provides a frame that scaffolds um, our development as we progress as facilitators around learning teams. That's great. So just the, there may well be the odd listener out there that um, has never come across PDCA Plan to Chicken Act. So, so maybe we'll just give a bit of insight to where it came from. So in the 1950s, the management consultant, Dr. William Edwards Deming, developed a method of identifying why some processes don't work as hoped. Sounds a bit like a learning team. Sounds a um, bit like you, you mean. Yeah, it does, it does. His approach has since become a very popular um, sort of strategy framework. And it allows organizations to formulate theories about what needs to change and then test them as some form of continuous feedback loop. Deming himself used the concept of actual plan, do, study, and act, not plan, do, check, and act, because he found that the focus on check is more about the implementation of change, whereas the focus of study is to understand why the change is working. He preferred to focus on studying the results of any improvements, which I think is actually really important from a learning perspective. And it does have that context around study that it's going to take a longer period of time than just check, doesn't it? But maybe that's why it's moved to check because people want to move on as part of that continuous improvement cycle. And that's how we've got to it. But yeah, I really, I like the way that, um, well, Deming's a bit of a hero of mine, actually. I, I really like what he has to say. And, you know, some of the stuff we talk about now was created in the 50s and 60s. And uh, so I think it's got some real legs and it's proven over in many organisations and many businesses to have worked really, really well. And it's a really, it's a really nice, simple way to get people back to the basics. And I understand that you actually got to see him in, in person. I did in um, 1991 when I didn't have gray hair. And uh, he was an interesting character. I uh, watched him, we're in a room in um, St. Louis, Missouri, and it was a room with 1,100 people in it. And the one memory I had, and it sort of put me off asking him a question actually, not that you're probably gonna chance with 1,100 people or disciples. A four-star admiral stood up and asked him about how he could possibly make plan to check out work on a um, aircraft carrier and Dr. Deming just tore him apart one strip at a time. <laughs> so I think the rest of us in that room just, hmm. you know, there's a powerful guy and it was, you know, and he didn't do it maliciously. He just said, you know, he just walked, walked him through it. 
and we all came back to plan do check act and that the system or the brittleness of the system is where you need to concentrate and not on the people stop measuring the people that's right focus on the system focus on the organization i read recently um some of the commentary from deming about heinrich and the accident triangle yeah, and once again, he, he, he basically saying, you know, just keep focusing on the system, not the people. And most of it's system failure, not people failure. And we're talking, this, this was in like the 50s. It was, uh, well, he was a statistician, wasn't he? So he was yeah. way ahead of his time. It certainly was. So, so when we think about plan, do, check and act, and when we talk about check, we'll be thinking about the study component of it, of the PDCA model. If we think about that in regards to a learning team around planning, we've basically identified two key components. One is around the purpose of the learning team. And the second part is around preparing for the learning team. And once again, I think these are really vital because if we don't set these up well to begin with, then we're not establishing that criteria for people moving forward. Uh, more often, we've been hearing from people about why learning teams taking so long. Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Because they shouldn't be. No, no, they shouldn't be. And, and that's because they're basically running one learning team into another learning team into another learning team. They're not seeing them as things that are quite discrete. So the first part of the purpose of a learning team is to actually ask yourself, what is the topic or the theme of the learning team? And it's really important to set the expectations for all the stakeholders. And if the scope is too wide, large, or vague, then you must consider running multiple learning teams or reduce the scope. Otherwise, you're going to fall into that trap. So it's about really establishing those, those key things up front. I think this, for me, whether it's safety or management of change or quality or lean or productivity improvement this is where a lot of people lose their way um, and you know over the over the years I've been involved in business people come up with this purpose or this problem identification statement and it is way too wide and what happens is it just gets out of control and I it, you're right it has to be narrower succinct and if, it, if there are multiple issues coming out of it breaking it down into the point that it um, that you've got one succinct thing that you're going to go and work with the learning team and, and that facilitation process on one thing. Otherwise, it'll just get out of control. And I've seen some um, lean events that have gone for days and days. And people, you know, you've got walls full of sticky notes and, and butcher's paper, and, and it, it's so big that nobody can end up dealing with it. You've got to break that down. So defining that purpose is very clear. Willis, do you want to start the conversation around the preparing part for the plan for the learning team? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that there's a, there's a number of things that we have to do. Um, we need to, to identify who are going to be the stakeholders that are going to be involved. Um, we need to consider the role that leadership will play. Um, are, they the, are they going to be the sponsors of that learning team? Are they going to be invited at the beginning? Are they going to be are you wanting to include them throughout? Are you wanting to include them at the beginning and at the end? Um, are you wanting to bring them in and out through different phases of the, the learning team? I think all of that has to be determined at the beginning. Um, and we need to think about how are we going to create an environment so that 
the participants of the learning team are going to feel psychologically safe to contribute and to talk about their experiences, to share their thoughts and opinions, but also to critically reflect on what's being discussed. Um, so, and how are we going to do that? What does that look like uh, for the group that we're going to be working with? Are they very new to the learning team? Are they people that have um, had ex previous experience of learning teams? Um, so we need to, to make sure that we set ground rules so people can be listened to, that they feel that they're being valued and respected for their contributions, that people can raise, raise their issues and concerns, put forward their opinions without retribution, that we can acknowledge and encourage people. And at the same time, we can also challenge ideas, um, but we can challenge ideas in a way that is um, appropriate for the group and uh, appropriate culturally as well. So just thinking about that, um, how important do you guys think it is for a leader to sponsor a learning team? I think it's really important that you get endorsement from, from leadership. Um, yeah. I, I think it depends what the learning team is about. If we're talking at a micro level that we're talking about every day, and then I think it's about a tacit agreement um, to this. If we're, if we're looking at system alignment or we're looking at, at waste or we're doing a risk review, then I think that the appropriate management should be aware of it, should be um, it should have some buy-in to it. Um, again, if we're looking at events, um, I think, again, definitely, depending on the severity of the, the event, then we need to get um, a fair amount of management buy-in to this. Yeah, I agree that the power of having somebody come into the room and set the stage is, for the people that are participating, is really, really quite powerful. And it says that the um, organisation or the business is really interested in what's going to come out of it. I think it's equally important that they don't stay there the whole time as well, in my experience. So, so when we think about those leaders sitting the stage, we, we basically need to provide them that frame of what that stage is going to look like. And certainly. That, yeah. yeah. And, and which means that really that, that's where the leaders need to understand what this current buzzword of psychological safety means within the context of a learning team. Because um, I'm not convinced that the leader creates psychological safety. I think psychological safety is formed by the people that are participating. But I sort of wonder that if it's a combination of the leader establishing um, that space for psychological safety to, to be formed or to be created, but then a lot of it's going to come back down to the facilitator. Yeah. I I agree that the leader might think they're providing that psychological safety and it's perception and reality. Their perception will be different to the people that are actually participating in the team and their reality of how they feel about it, you know, and that'll be based on experience of previous events, experience of the organization and how they, how they see people moving and, and reacting within the organization. I mean, the old days, it was, we supplied the donuts. Yeah, look, I think no. in this case, it's about giving permission for this to take place. Um, and in terms of that psychological safety, I think it's about the facilitator creating the environment and, and setting the ground rules. Um, and then it's about the learning team contributors adhering to those ground rules. So if we think of a learning team in respect to, say, an event-based learning team or a management of change product learning team, um, now, when should the leader participate? What are, you, what are your thoughts around that? I think in an event-based learning team, 
I'm not sure, you know, if you're already using learning teams, which you, I imagine you are because you wouldn't do an event-based learning team without using, using it for every day or for management of change, it's not necessarily, I think it's not, well, it's not necessarily in my mind important to have the leader come in at the start, right? Because you, you're going to go through a process and it's going to be a really emotional process. Um, I think if it's, you know, management of change, or it's about an improve, you know, you're looking for improvement, then it's really important that they are sponsoring it and, and supporting it. And so I see those two things have been quite different in my mind and in my experience. Um, and then everyday learning teams, I think, you, do it. you know, Glenn has talked about it before, but you're doing it regularly in the short, snappy, fast, and you're getting some real, some, you know, you know, hopefully some learning out of it. And, I don't think you need them there either. You already got that tacit approval from the organization. I think at the end of an event-based um, learning team, then it's very important that the, or it's very important that the leaders are there and it's how they react is even more important. I think Todd's talked about that numerous times about how leaders react will have the biggest effect on the people there and in the organization. And I think it's important because, uh, Glynis, you were mentioning yesterday when we're running some training with a group about the difference between listening and judging. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, particularly for leaders. So, so I think it's really important that we, that we set this expectation for them that when they're there as part of that process, they are there to listen. Most definitely. But I think that that's part of the scoping exercise, making sure that all the stakeholders are really clear about what role are they going to play in that learning team and what is that learning team going to focus on? You know, again, what we're, what we're, what we're hearing back from practitioners is that sometimes learning teams run away from them. So, you know, they have people that go off on tangents and it's really hard to pull them back in or the learning team just seems to kind of keep delving and delving and the, you can't get out of that problem identification side or alternatively, there's almost no problem identification people jump straight into the problem solving. And, you know, I think, I agree that happens so often yeah well that really comes down to the skill of the facilitator yeah um, if you don't have a really good skilled facilitator actually people with agendas they start to come to the fore and it can be more and more difficult to manage them I think that people don't know what it is that they're being asked to do I think that sometimes managers can overstep the mark um, and move outside of active listening into judgment um, as Bob just alluded to so I think that this is about scoping the learning team up front making sure that stakeholders have a really good idea of what it is that they're being asked to contribute. Um, and then the facilitator really being given the permission with that group of people to really lead that discussion. I was talking to a uh, business the other day and they they do facilitation, but you know, facilitation of you know large events or they might manage stakeholders in very controversial building development and construction development programs. And one of the things I love that they talked about, they have this micro skill that they like to use called um, heart listening. And it's not just about listening to what the person's saying and their point of view. It's also taking notice of their body language and how they're reacting. And it gives you a much greater feel for how important the words they're saying are to them. And I found that really interesting because, you know, we talk about active listening, but there was this next level where they're incorporating, you know, how, the, how they're reacting with their body. And um, I really like that. It was a really interesting way of looking at it. 
Um, I was always taught in adult literacy that you speak to communicate. So the onus is on you when you're in a speaking role. So the onus is on you to speak as clearly as you can and to monitor how people are responding to the way that you speak, to ensure that the message is conveyed as clearly and as much as you intended it. But on the flip side of that, as I was always taught that you, you listen to understand. And that's a very different form of listening than how we typically listen. Most of us listen with the thought to how are we going to respond. So we're really just listening to the words and we're already, as people are speaking, thinking of formulating and thinking about how are we going to respond to that? You know, how will we add to it? How will we counter it? How will we support it? But that's a very different type of listening than what we need to be doing, both as facilitators, but also the role of management. If managers are participating, particularly in that kind of the early, the unfolding part of the learning team, they need to be able to listen to understand. So they're not there as the judge. They're not there as the person to, to dole out retribution. But they're there really in that, that initial phase to listen to understand as the story is being unfolded. And so that's something that often we have to upskill people around, both in terms of participants of the learning team, both in terms of ourselves as facilitators, but often also in terms of managers if they're going to have a part to play in learning teams. So then if leaders also get involved, the latter, the latter part of the learning team, then really they should be there to be curious to ask those questions around the sort of, the, you know, the, the learnings, the, the clarification components that make sense. They're not there to um, participate in the problem identification. No, I, I agree. They're, 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 they're there to really set that scene and, and, and then to be curious in the later part of, of that process. Well, they might have they might have been there to say, well, here is the problem, and we're really looking forward to how you, the learning team can um, dig down into what's causing the problem. I think you know that top level problem identification can be um, driven by the leadership, but your point about what they do with it when they hear what they what some of the learnings have been, I think that is. They've got to be listening at that point, and not trying to um, not trying to drive the conversation in a certain direction. And uh, I, I used to work with a guy that he was, you know, managing director of the business, and he was fantastic at taking you on a journey. And he was a great facilitator in some respects, but he knew what the answer was. He wanted everyone to get to, right? So he was the end, sort of the anti-learning team guy when you in um, reflection. And he was very good at doing it, you know, and I think you've got to be careful as a facilitator of a learning team, you've got to be careful of those type of people that are taking that lead and driving the outcome, or they already have a preconceived idea of what the outcome is that they want. And this is something in between. I think, that, you know, we've got to be cognizant of that in that planning stage when you're talking to the leadership. In terms of that preparation that we need to do before we run a learning team, the other thing that we need to be really mindful of is where are we going to hold it? Um, what's the space that we're going to use to, to run the learning team? Are we going to do it in the, the staff room that potentially has people coming and going? Are we going to do it in the back office that has no natural light? Are we going to do it in, you know, in a busy um, open planned environment? And we're going to be really, we need to think about, well, where is the best place that we, again, set people up so that they are able to, to share and to talk about their experiences, to put forward their ideas, to, but more importantly, to be able to critically reflect. Um, so again, we need to think about the environment in which we're going to do this. 
we also need to consider, you know, are we able to do this face-to-face? -face? Do we need to do this remote or do we need to use a kind of a mixed um, approach? And we also need to think about it from the point of view of our facilitation skills. It, it can be challenging when we do this re remote, um, particularly over, you know, various sort of platforms. Certainly when we are able to sit and see how somebody is, is speaking, what sort of language they're using, but mainly how they use their body, what's their body language like? Are they defensive? Are they, um, you know, what are the sort of the subtle uh, kind of communication skills? Some of that is harder to read when we're looking at kind of remote learning. Um, and we also need to think about how long is the learning team going to be? You know, I think that um, we've talked about this many times that for many people, this is a really challenging part, but how do you keep people on task? How do you do adequate uh, problem identification before you get over to the problem solution part. It's really about pacing, isn't it? It's, you've got to keep it, you know, when you're facilitating, it's that always that challenge of giving people the opportunity to be heard and listened to and letting the, the wisdom of the group move across the group versus not getting bogged down in something and going down a, down a rabbit hole. And I think that's, that's one of the things I've, you know, as I've started doing these, I struggled with to start with, is just keeping it succinct, but letting the group have time to have that discussion and thinking about what type of group you have when you're uh, planning these. So I think if you've got a, sorry, if you've got a group of engineers, it's going to be a different outcome to a group of, of people from the factory floor or from a construction site. I think one of the greatest skills that you need kind of in terms of actually leading a facilitation um, it, it is really about being able to reframe. So, you know, one of the things that I find in learning teams is that people will put forward all sorts of ideas. They'll put forward all sorts of opinions. Sometimes those opinions are slightly left of, of where you are really intending to go. But what you need to be able to do as a facilitator is to reframe that and bring them back into the fold. Um, and constantly kind of pull back those outliers, whether somebody has an agenda or whether somebody has, you know, just they, they, they get stuck on a point and aren't, aren't able to move forward. I think you, you need to be able to acknowledge people and reframe what they're saying so that actually you can take some essence from it so people feel that their contribution is being valued. Um, but really at this preparation stage, it's really thinking about those physical things that we need to do. So where's the room? What's the, what's the layout like? What's the timing going to be? Who's going to be involved? What's the scoping for, for the individuals and the, the stakeholders who are going to participate? It's kind of nailing some of those things up front. If you do good preparation, you have a good outcome. If you do poor preparation, actually you wing it and sometimes you'll have a good outcome, but many times actually the learning team will run away from you. Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.